throughout the summer, we've had a, a number of guests who, who've taught uh, and we're getting ready to kick something off that Rob and I have been super excited about for two years, but we're, we're doing it now. I'm gonna ask Mike Vogt to come up and join me. Uh, you've heard Mike teach before over the years. Mike is a longtime member of Fellowship. He's a dear friend and he's an elder. So here's one who sits on that elder board to shepherd our body. Y'all, it's, it's over two year, it was over two years ago we had planned last summer uh, to do something that's been on, on Robin, my heart, and that is, can, can we take some time to go deeper uh, in a particular area of ministry or equipping? And it's hard to do when there's two congregations and we're going back and forth. It, it, it just, it, it's difficult because you'd have to stay at one congregation and do it. And so our plan last year was to do this and we're actually doing it this year. <clears throat> and just so you know, in, in, at Brentwood, I, I, I introduced Larry Kayser, uh, our pastor of um, marriage ministry. And Larry's doing a, a, a series on marriage and relationships, five straight weeks that we'll be in that. And then I'll wrap it up with our, our counseling director up there. And then this morning, we're kicking off uh, uh, five straight weeks where we are going to dive into uh, the, 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 the area of apologetics. And I could not think of a, a, a better person to teach us in this area. And you're gonna see this than Mike Vogt. I've known Mike for a number of years. Mike has served this body in numerous areas prior even to stepping into his role and responsibility as an elder. Mike and I have made a number of trips to Africa. And, and here's a guy, if I may say, who when the going got rough in Africa, which it seems to happen every few years, and the particular areas that we go into are quite frankly dangerous, so dangerous, we actually cancel trips. You know, we just don't feel like we wanna take people in. He goes on his own. Uh, and would not, would not have a year go by that our partners in, in South Sudan wouldn't know uh, we're for them. And that's, that's his heart. Trained in apologetics. Uh, and so I'm super excited about what's coming our way. In the front of your chair, you will find uh, some notes. These are showing up every week. So if you'll grab these, and, and by the way, sitting through the first message, it was helpful to have these to fill in some blanks. Um, if you grab them, you'll have five of these by the end of uh, you know, this series that honestly, as I said earlier, it's like a seminary course in apologetics from one of our own. So with that, I'm gonna pray for Mike and uh, I'll invite you to take those notes and your Bible and uh, let's submit ourselves to the word. Hmm. Let me pray for you, Mike. Thanks, buddy. Father, thank you for the opportunity to sit under Mike's teaching. What a gift. I know many times we've stood like this in huts in South Sudan as we've, we've, we've taught there and I've sat under his teaching now, the great privilege of hearing from him. And Lord, I know his heart is that we would hear from you. And so we invite you, Holy Spirit, to speak through Mike, to open our hearts to hear and to respond in faith that you would be lifted up, Jesus, and your glory would prevail. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Thanks brother. Wow. Good morning, Fellowship Franklin. How's everyone doing today? Good. Doing well? Happy July 4th. I'm grateful to celebrate the birth of our nation with you today. Um, well, as Lloyd was saying, uh, we've been planning this uh, series for quite some time, and I am nothing short of giddy that this Sunday has finally arrived. Uh, I've been getting ready for this for some time, and... 
super excited, not an understatement, uh, that I get to be with you this morning. Uh, the next five weeks, uh, they're going to feel different. Uh, this is not going to feel like normal church. Uh, these five weeks are going to feel a bit more like a Sunday school environment, and that's by design. Um, love for you guys to take notes. If, the notes, if you're an active learner, I think that handout will help you. Uh, for those who are interested, I'll be more than happy to make any teaching notes available to you as well. But I want this to be a time of learning. And to the extent that we can, I'm gonna make some of this interactive over the next five weeks as well. Because I, I think we tend to learn better when we get to interact with the content uh, that we're coming into, into contact with. All right, a little bit of backstory. Uh, I became a believer at 21 years of age. Uh, I uh, befriended a man on a basketball court at the University of Calgary up in Canada. And uh, I became good friends with this guy. I bumped into him all the time on the basketball court as I was, don't listen kids, skipping classes at university um, to play basketball. And I befriended a man named Rod Sawatsky. And uh, as I got to not only admire his skills in basketball, as I got to learn more about him, I discovered he was also an exceptional human being. And I enjoyed just spending time with him. And one time uh, after playing basketball, he invited me to go join him at a cafeteria on campus to drink a cup of coffee with him. So we did so. And uh, we weren't 10 minutes into that conversation before he was uh, sketching out the gospel for me on the back of a napkin. I had never heard the gospel before. Uh, I grew up in a family where we didn't go to church. Uh, I think I had been to church twice before that, and that was to see two of my cousins get married. Uh, and I'd never heard the name of Jesus spoken in a way that wasn't used as like a curse word, basically. He drew out the gospel for me, and 10 minutes later, I had prayed to receive Christ. Um, and this man uh, belonged to an organization called Athletes in Action. It was a branch of Campus Crusade for Christ. And following my conversion, he took a few weeks to disciple me and to walk me through some content to kind of build a foundation for my faith. And in this discipleship journey, uh, one of the things that Rod asked me to do was he said, I would like you to share your faith. I'd like for you to tell someone that you've decided to become a Christian. I said, sounds good. So I thought through who I'd want to share Christ with and who I'd want to tell that I've become a believer in Jesus. And I decided I was going to share my faith with my roommate, a guy named Jeff. So I kind of summoned up my courage and I initiated with Jeff and told him that I have decided to become a Christian. And as I started to talk to him about my belief in Christ and putting my trust in one who could forgive my sins, I, I looked up at Jeff's face and I discovered that a smile had begun to develop on his countenance. And I spoke a little more about Jesus' love and forgiveness. And upon closer examination, I realized that Jeff's smile was actually more of a smirk. Um, and I decided to hit the pause button and say, okay, dude, what gives? What's, what's with the smirk? And Jeff said something like this to me. He says, Mike, don't you know that the Bible has been translated so many times from one language to the next language to the next language to the next language, it's been translated so many times that we've actually lost the original meaning of the Bible. We have no idea what the original document actually said. And when he said that to me, a whole host of emotions came over me. Uh, the first thought that crossed my mind was, have I been duped, right? Did I put my trust in this religion thing in an unfounded way? Because what Jeff said to me made perfect sense. We've all played the game telephone, right? Is this thing on? Oh, there we go. We've all played the game telephone, 
where someone whispers something to the next person, to the next person, to the next person, then you're not very far down the row before you've completely lost the original message. And if the Bible came down to us through a similar way, his objection made perfect sense to me. But I gotta tell you, it rattled me. Uh, it made me wonder if my faith was ill-placed. And so what I did from that experience, obviously my uh, sharing of my faith with Jeff came to an abrupt halt in that moment. I went back to Rod and I said, dude, what about, what, what about the integrity of the Bible? And Rod shared with me an answer that was satisfactory to me. But I gotta tell you that that initial experience of sharing my faith, it kind of rattled me. It kind of left an impression on me that made me hesitant to step out and share my experience, my conversion experience with other people, because I felt like I kind of got my hand slapped when I first did it. And there was a, I don't know, I guess I'd say a timidity that developed in me because I realized that when you encounter an objection that you don't know how to handle, it creates an uneasiness in you. Um, and for me, that uneasiness lasted for quite some time. I'm not sure if any one of you in the room can resonate with that kind of experience. If you've ever shared your faith with someone and you've encountered an objection that you didn't know how to navigate. Well, fast forward uh, about four years, I've moved from Canada, now living in Southern California, and I'm attending a church in Orange County and I can still kind of see the poster on the wall that was advertising a lecture, an upcoming guest speaker. A guy named Hugh Hewitt, uh, was coming. He was a guest speaker who's been on CNN and a few other different talk shows. He was coming and he was gonna be delivering a, a talk and I can still remember the title of his lecture. It was called Robust Christianity in an Age of Unbelief. I don't know why I still remember the name of that lecture. Robust Christianity in an Age of Unbelief. And I went and I listened to Hugh Hewitt and for 90 minutes, this guy gave an intellectual defense of Christianity that had my jaw on the floor. I had no idea that you could actually defend and articulate the reasonableness, the truthfulness of Christianity. And my mind came alive in that experience. It got me so intrigued and so hungry to learn about how do we articulately defend the Christian faith? How do we take a stand for what we believe and hold to be true? And that 90-minute lecture got me into a certificate program for apologetics. After that, I decided to go on and do a master's degree in apologetics. It's been a passion of mine to study and to learn this content because I think this is part of the discipleship process. We're to love the Lord with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I feel like learning apologetics for me has been about learning how to love God well with my mind. So let's talk a little bit about apologetics. Uh, apologetics comes from the Greek word apologia, and this Greek word is translated a ready defense. Apologetics is the ready defense of the Christian faith. Now, the defense of the Christian faith is put forth very clearly uh, the concept of apologetics is put forth very clearly in the Bible all throughout. It's inferred in some places and spoken of very directly in others. But one of the verses, if you ever take an apologetics class in seminary, they're gonna point you very quickly to 1 Peter 3.15. And if you wouldn't mind, I'd love for us to read this verse together as a church this morning. So if I can get your eyes on the screen, let's read 1 Peter 3.15. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. I love this verse 
It's actually got lots of lines of meaning within it. Uh, the first thing I want to call to your attention uh, that Peter points us to is the fact that there is hope that is in us. That hope is the gospel of Jesus Christ. He is our hope. In fact, he is the only hope for the world. Jesus says himself in John 14, 6, he says, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. That sounds very elitist. That sounds very exclusivist. That doesn't resonate real well with the tone of our culture today, but that doesn't make it any less true. Guys, Jesus is the only way to salvation, and our job as believers in Christ is to share that hope with others. Now, Peter also tells us in this that we are to be prepared to give an answer. That statement implies that we're gonna come in contact with people who will have questions. And as I discovered with my roommate, Jeff, a lack of preparedness to provide an answer can sometimes result in the conversation not going very well. So we are to be prepared to give an answer. Peter also says that we are to give reasons for the hope that we have. We are to be able to provide reason for our hope. Guys, this for me is where I think apologetics can change the tone of the conversation when we're engaging with an unbeliever or a pre-believer. If you're on, let's just say, for example, Vanderbilt University's campus, and you're to walk up to a professor who's highly educated and who you know to be a very passionate atheist, what would happen if you walked up to him and you said, I believe Jesus rose from the grave? What would he say back to you? He'd probably say, isn't that cute? Something like that. He might follow it with a bit more vinegar and he might berate you a little bit, but he probably wouldn't take your claim very seriously if you say, I believe Jesus rose from the grave on the third day. But what if instead you said, I have excellent reasons for believing that Jesus rose from the grave on the third day? You see, one is a statement of belief. The other one suggests that that statement can be defended. Now, he might, still, he, he, he might still not give you a response that you'd like, but it's not gonna start with how cute. If you say, I have excellent reasons for believing that Jesus arose from the grave, he'll probably start with, okay, you got my attention. Let's talk. Apologetics has a way of equipping you to actually support the reasons for your faith. And I think it's an extremely potent force for that reason. Peter also says, and perhaps most importantly, sometimes this part is overlooked, that we're to do this with gentleness and respect. You guys, our candor in conversations is extremely important because our message is packaged in a person. And as a student of apologetics at Biola University, I have to tell you that I've seen some debates where a Christian debated an atheist or someone of a different belief system, and they so wiped the floor with their opponent that they may have won the debate, but they probably lost the soul. Our approach in this has to be very loving and gracious and kind and humble. We are to communicate truth, but do so with gentleness and respect. If you've ever met the know-it-all arrogant Christian, you know what I'm talking about. We can't smell like a Pharisee. We have to smell like Christ in all of our communication. We are to be bold. We are to be firm in our convictions, but we are to be so with gentleness and with respect. Okay. I've got a few reasons why I think every Christian should in some way, shape, or form be a student of apologetics. Apologetics. 
Now, full transparency, I've, I've done talks to groups like this and I've had people say, Mike, I just wanna have faith. Like get off me with this apologetic stuff. Why can't I just have faith in Jesus? You can, right? We become believers when we trust Christ and we put our faith in him. But part of the discipleship journey, guys, is I feel like we have to grow up in Christ as well. And I feel like we have to be able to put on some muscle, put on some intellectual strength so that we can be better equipped to have intelligent conversations with people who have not yet become Christians. Apologetics for every believer can serve three purposes in my opinion. The first is this, and I've tried to put in red letters the words that are the fill in the blank portion if you happen to track with the handout. Apologetics has a role in the church, first of all, because it can be a tool that God uses uh, to foster salvation decisions. Apologetics can be a tool that God uses or to foster salvation decisions. Now, I will be the first to say that most people become a Christian because their heart moves. I heard the gospel and I became, I felt the weight of sin in my life. I felt that I was apart from God. I felt some kind of a distance from God and I was aware of the sin in my life and I was aware that I was at, at odds with the holy God if he existed. And my heart allowed me to leap to Christ and become a Christian. Some people, their head acts as a gatekeeper for the heart. And the, the head won't allow the heart to move until its objections, until its obstacles are resolved. And so for some people, they need to have those uh, objections untangled uh, before they're allowed to leap to the Lord. And a few people have, this has been their experience. They've had to use apologetics as part of their means to coming to the faith. This guy here is one example of that. This is Clive Staples Lewis, C.S. Lewis, my absolute favorite Oxford professor. This guy had a very well-formed atheism from the time that he was a young child when his mother died. And that atheism uh, became strengthened as he grew older and eventually attended Oxford University. On campus, however, he befriended a professor of Anglo-Saxon, a man named J.R.R. Tolkien, who helped Lewis talk through and work through his atheism. And Tolkien helped Lewis unravel and see more clearly the reasons that he held against the existence of God. And Lewis, after working through these, became a Christian and arguably the most ardent and articulate defender of the Christian faith to this day. If you've never read the writings of C.S. Lewis, write down as a takeaway from today, buy writings from C.S. Lewis. Become acquainted with him. He's fantastic. Another guy who's become, uh, who became a Christian through an experience with apologetics is this man. Uh, some of you may recognize the face. This is a guy named Lee Strobel. Uh, Lee's wife came home one day and informed her husband that she had become a Christian. And Lee was so enraged by this choice that he decided, decided that rather than just simply ridicule her, which was her, his preference, he was actually going to prove to her that she made a stupid decision. Lee was an investigative journalist for the Chicago Tribune newspaper, and he was going to put his skills to work to debunk Christianity. And Lee set out specifically to disprove the resurrection of Jesus. In fact, he went to work and kind of uh, connected with a coworker who said, I'm gonna take up the charge with you. His coworker said, I'm gonna go out and set out to disprove the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. They kind of divided and conquered. Well, nine months later, after doing their independent research and homework, do you know that both of these men decided to become Christians because they discovered that uh, they were pounding against a brick wall? Lee had discovered that the resurrection actually happened. And his coworker discovered that Saul of Tarsus actually did become a Christian and had an encounter with the living Jesus Christ. 
they both became believers. And Lee, after trying to debunk it, realizing he couldn't and that it was truth, he went on a crusade to tell other people about his discoveries. Many of you have probably read the book, The Case for Christ, which is Lee using his investigative journalist skills to tell about Christianity. He's also followed up by writing The Case for Faith, The Case for Easter, so on and so forth. This next guy, I don't have a picture of him because I couldn't find a good, quite honestly, a very flattering photo of him. Uh, this is a guy named Anthony Flew. Uh, the subtitle to the book, There Is a God, says how the most, world's most no notorious atheist changed his mind. Uh, if you've never heard of Anthony Flew, for about 50 years, this guy literally wrote the agenda for intellectual atheism. For 50 years, this guy was the lead thinker to promote the defense of atheism until he changed his mind. And he wrote a book about it so he could prove to his peers that he didn't simply just fly over the cuckoo's nest and completely lose his mind. Uh, why did Anthony Flew change his mind? He looked at the evidence. He looked at the evidence for intelligent design. He looked at the fine-tuning of the universe, how it's balanced on the head of a pin to be able to support life. He looked at the amount of information inside a DNA molecule, and he said, there is no way that could have happened by chance. We call it the cosmological argument or the argument by design. And he looked at that and said, there's no way this happened by itself. This has to have been led by an intelligent God. And so he wrote a book to talk about that. Another person, and I do love this photo, this is Chuck Colson. Some of you may have heard of uh, Chuck Colson and the ministry he started called Prison Fellowship Ministries. Uh, Chuck, some of you may not know, was actually a speechwriter for President Nixon. And he was implicated in the Watergate scandal. And so Chuck spent some time in the slammer. And while he was behind bars, the chaplain in the prison didn't pass him a Bible between the bars. They passed him a copy of C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity. And Chuck Colson read it, and I love this quote. He said, while in prison awaiting trial for my role in the Watergate scandal, I was given a copy of Mere Christianity. I opened Mere Christianity and found myself face to face with an intellect so disciplined so lucid, so relentlessly logical that I could only be grateful that I had never faced him in a court of law. Soon I had covered two pages of yellow paper with prose to my query, is there a God? And he worked through, through these, this, this cumulative case promoting that God existed through Lewis's book and obviously became a Christian and has started an extremely successful ministry since then. So why do we study apologetics? The first reason is it can foster salvation decisions in and of itself. But there's another reason why we study apologetics. Here's, here's reason number two. We study apologetics so that it can, as a tool, it can weaken an unbeliever's confidence in their worldview. It can weaken an unbeliever's confidence in their worldview. Now, one person got this question right in the first service. Let's see how the second service does. Does anybody recognize this woman? Anyone have a guess? Yeah. Madeline Murray O'Hare. $10, man. Well done. This is Madeline Murray O'Hare. Well done. Second service is crisp as well. Now, many of us know the name Madeline Murray O'Hare, but most people don't know why we know her name. Madeline Murray O'Hare is a very, very outspoken atheist. And she had a son who went to public school and was made to pray before class started every day. She didn't like that. She said, I live in America too, 
And according to our constitution, we live in a land of religious liberty, which means I get to choose. And I don't like that my son is being made to pray before he starts class. So she challenged this in the court system and it went up and up and up and up all the way to the Supreme Court and she won. She is the reason why prayer is no longer in public schools in the United States of America. Why is her picture on the screen? Well, let me give you an example of how apologetics can weaken an unbeliever's confidence in their worldview. Madeline Murray O'Hare was presenting a lecture at Whittier College in Southern California a number of years ago. And it was a packed room. Every seat was filled in the auditorium. The walls were all lined with people standing. It was a crowded house. And she gave a talk for about 45 minutes. And at the end of her talk, she decided to entertain questions. The person in the front row right here raised his hand and said, uh, and she, when she took questions, and she pointed at him and he said, Miss O'Hare, I've got a question. She said, fire away. He said, in our time together with you this morning, you have not defined what an atheist is. I'm wondering if you could please do that for us at this time. She said, sure. She said, there is absolutely no chance that God exists. Zero. God does not exist. She's really animated, playing to the crowd. He says, thank you, Miss O'Hare. He said, a follow-up question, if I might. He said, of all available knowledge in the world, what percent do you suppose you possess? And he says, before you answer that, let me remind you that it's estimated that 10,000 languages are spoken on the earth, 10,000. So if you knew 1% of all languages, you'd speak 100 languages. These languages all emerge out of cultures with histories we'd expect for you to know about. They come from different political structures we'd expect you to know about. He listed several of the sciences and so forth. And he said, Miss O'Hare, of all available knowledge, what percent do you suppose you possess? And she says, 10%. Really flamboyant. He says, okay, thank you, Miss O'Hare. He said, another question. He said, is it possible that knowledge of God could exist outside of your own realm of knowledge? And it was silent. Is it possible that knowledge of God could exist outside of your realm of knowledge? And when I say it was silent, guys, it was 20 seconds of uninterrupted silence in the auditorium. And you have to assume she's weighing her answers at this time. If she says, no, there's no chance that God could exist outside of my realm of knowledge, she gets a dunce cap. Why? She just confessed that she only possesses 10%, very generous estimate, by the way. She only possesses 10% of all available knowledge. 90% she does not have access to in her mind. If she says no, she looks like an idiot. If she says yes, knowledge of God could exist outside of my realm of knowledge, what happens? She's no longer an atheist. She's graduated to being an agnostic. So she's weighing her answers at this time. And to the question that was asked, is it possible that knowledge of God could exist outside of your realm of knowledge? When the silence finally broke, she says, I'll give you a qualified no. He says, what's the qualifier? She said, next questioner, please. She wanted to get off the hot seat. Isn't that interesting? She didn't fall on her face and become a Christian and accept Jesus, but with three very well-placed strategic questions, her, the faults of her worldview, or at least some of them, were exposed. Apologetics is a tool that can help people understand that the worldview that they hold to be true is not necessarily on a sure footing as they think it could be. What's the third reason why every believer should learn a little bit about apologetics? Apologetics can strengthen the faith of all believers. 
Guys, if apologetics only ever accomplishes this third thing, I think it's worth its weight in gold. Apologetics will strengthen the faith of you and it'll strengthen the faith of me. Why do I say this? When my roommate Jeff posed a very, very simple and very logical objection to the uh, accuracy and trustworthiness of the Bible, I can tell you that I was rattled. My faith was shaken in that moment. Now, yes, I only had a three-week or four-week-old faith, however long I'd been a Christian at that time, so there wasn't much of a foundation to stand on, but I had a first-person experience with what it's like to have your faith challenged and for you to kind of go, hmm, I wonder if I actually believe what I believe. I've been down that road, and I'm telling you that digging into the answers for that helped me to resolve my own questions I had within Christianity, my own objections or thoughts I had within Christianity. And I'm pretty sure that my experience with Jeff, it looks at least in part why some of our kids who when they go off to college, we find that their faith is challenged and sometimes they walk away from the faith of their childhood. There's an alarming statistic of kids that, that walk away from Christianity who grew up as Christians, they, but when they go off to college, their faith is rattled and it's, they drop it. I don't think it's just because they've tasted beer for the first time in their college experience. I think it's because they enter an intellectually robust climate and when their faith gets challenged by smart people, they realize that they haven't put on much intellectual muscle to defend and to know why they believe. Apologetics, guys, is a tool to help you put on some intellectual muscle in this regard. Now, with our time that remains today, I wanna take some time to answer what I just uh, uh, affectionately call the Jeff objection. We're gonna look at what my roommate challenged in terms of his understanding of the Bible, and we're gonna take 10 minutes just to get under the hood on this objection. Then I will tell you that Jeff's not the only person to have ever put forth this objection. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, affectionately called the Mormons, Article 8 of their faith says that the Bible is only trustworthy insofar as it has been accurately translated. They infer that our Bible has not been passed down to us accurately over time. That's why they feel we need further revelation. If you read the Quran, the holy book of Islam, it also infers that the Christian scriptures have been corrupted and they are not trustworthy. And that's why their presentation of Jesus is not to be trusted, but rather the Quran's depiction of Jesus is. So a lot of, a lot of people groups, a lot of uh, different religions purport that the Bible has been corrupted over time. The question is, has that been the case? What we're gonna do is spend a few minutes just to look at this. Before we do, I want you to know that the Bible is, well, we bundle it as one book, right? We call it one book in front of us. It's 27 individual documents written by nine different authors. And we are going to look at this, but we call it the New Testament because we bundle it, but just know it's 27 different independent writings, okay? And we're gonna look at how trustworthy is our copy of the New Testament. And for time constraints today, we're not gonna look at the Bible. We're just gonna look at the New Testament, right? Critical critics, critical scholars, they spend most of the time looking at the New Testament because that's where we find the teachings about Jesus. And Jesus, quite frankly, is the whole ball game on this playing field. So people will attack the writings that put forth the description and the teachings of Jesus. So we're gonna spend our time looking at what does the New Testament look like in terms of how it's been passed down to us. So how trustworthy is our copy? Well, I use the word copy intentionally because we no longer have the originals. We no longer have the originally penned Gospel of John. We no longer have the very first copy of the book of Romans. Now, a critic or a skeptic might say, 
oh, how convenient. And I'd say back to them, no, that's just science. Why do I say that? Guys, the New Testament was originally written on papyrus. I brought some papyrus. I ordered this years ago. It's actually quite expensive to acquire. Uh, I've brought some papyrus and my plan was to hand this out for you guys to touch and feel during service. But Lord reminded me we're still kind of in a COVID protocol. That's why we have this communion individual cup. So I can't pass this around to you. I would desperately like to. After service, I've got four pieces of papyrus. Come up and check this stuff out. Feel it, hold it up to the light and check it out. Papyrus is a plant that grows along the edge of the Nile River. It's a reeded plant that people would crush to compress it, flatten it out, and then they lay one piece this way and they lay the next piece this way to give it kind of a crisscrossy pattern. It strengthens it. But if you ever touch this and you're to say, what are the odds that this would survive in a non-air conditioned climate through moisture, significant transitions in temperature, and a whole lot of sandstorms, how long would this last? You'd realize along with everyone else, this is not designed to stand the test of time. It just isn't. Um, in fact, the only surviving papyrus from thousands of years ago that we have today are in our hands because they spent about 1,500 years in an air-sealed jar, such as was the case with the Dead Sea Scrolls, right? Um, but apart from that, this stuff is just not designed to last forever, okay? Now, the question we need to ask is, will the absence of the originals prevent us from having a uh, from knowing what the original autographs would have said. If we don't have the original, how can we know what was written? Well, and to this, I will say that all of our works from ancient history, all of our ancient literature comes down to us through a common process called textual criticism. And a textual critic is someone who will look at the surviving manuscript copies, compare their variants to be able to determine what the original would have said. And for us to be able to do this with a high degree of confidence, we need two things. The first thing we need is an, a preponderance of manuscripts to be able to compare, right? If we have four copies of the Gospel of John, we're less likely to know what the original said than if we had 400 copies of the Gospel of John. You tracking? So we want a lot of manuscripts. Manuscript quantity is important. The second thing we're looking for is the manuscript uh, time span, how many years have passed from the original to the age of the surviving manuscript copies that we've got. So those are the two things we're gonna look at. First things first, on the surviving manuscript quantities, let me just take a look at some of the other types of literature that's been handed down to us from antiquity. Uh, here's about five or so examples. Um, the first one is Herodotus. Uh, do you know that we only have eight surviving copies of Herodotus uh, that we have in manuscript form? We've only got 20 surviving manuscripts from the Roman historian named Tacitus, who wrote about the lives of three Roman emperors. Uh, we've got about 260 copies of Caesar, 230 copies of Plato, uh, and we have 1,800 copies of Homer's Iliad. 1,800. It was the most popular book in ancient Greece. How does the New Testament compare? Guys, we have 5,300 manuscript copies in the original Greek, in the Koine Greek of the New Testament. 5,300. Now, you're doing really good in this game if you have 200 surviving manuscripts. We have 5,300 to be able to compare. Now, what do these look like? Guys, some of these are entire New Testaments. 
Some of these are in terrific shape. They look awesome. And we've got literally the entire New Testament all in one parking spot. Others of these are individual scrolls, uh, just the book of John, the book of 1 Corinthians, etc. A lot of these are fragments, uh, individual pieces because time and erosion and the weather elements and so forth chipped away at these things. But every single one of these is entered into evidence for us to be able to ascertain what did it look like when it was first written. Okay, so manuscript quantity, we've got a bunch to be able to compare from. It is the, by far the most attested work from ancient literature that is in our hands today. What about the date gap or the time span from the originals to the oldest surviving copy? Well, if we look at Herodotus, remember there was only eight copies to compare. The oldest copy of Herodotus in existence is four, dated to 1,400 years after Herodotus wrote the work. And you might ask, well, how do we even date these things? Guys, they look at the writing surface. They look at the type of ink that was used. They look at the literary style. They can also use carbon dating to be able to determine the age of the manuscript. They can also tell you what region it came from. Okay, we look at something like Tacitus. Tacitus is a thousand years after it was first written is the age of the manuscript that's closest to the original. It was a thousand years later. We get down to like Plato and Homer, 200 and 400 years. That's pretty darn good. In this game, if you're like sort of 400 to 600 years, you've got exceptionally good dating. How does the, how does the New Testament compare when we get into this world? 25 years is as close as we can get our New Testament copies to, from the date of their original composition. Pretty incredible. What's interesting on this particular front, guys, is that we're still finding manuscripts. Literally, to this day, we are still finding manuscripts. Um, one of the interesting finds from about 150 years ago, there is an explorer that was traveling throughout Egypt, and he went to a place called St. Catherine's Monastery, which was located at the foot of Mount Sinai. And this man found a codex, which is a Bible or New Testament that was bound together more like a book than a scroll. He found a codex in the monastery's trash. It was dated to the early 300s. Codex Sinaiticus. Crazy. This thing was being thrown out by the monastery and he found a writing from the early 300s. Another example of this is the John Ryland Papyrus. I learned about this one in seminary. This is one of the oldest um, fragments from the New Testament we've got. It's a segment from John 18. It might not look like much, but guys, even with that, we can compare the specific portions of the verses within John 18. Okay, this is dated to 117 AD. That's about plus or minus 25-ish to 30 years after John wrote it. Uh, he wrote his writings from the island of Patmos in exile off the coast of, uh, of Greece. Now, even earlier than John Ryland are some uh, uh, fragments that we find among the Dead Sea Scrolls. These fragments were dated between 50 and 70 AD. We got uh, copies or portions from the book of Mark, from the book of Acts, from Romans, 1 Timothy, 2 Peter, and James. Uh, and again, we're still finding these things. We've got the entire Bible from the early 300s. We've got almost the, sorry, the entire New Testament from the early 300s. We have most of the New Testament from around 250 AD. We've got entire books without uh, any words, any verses, et cetera, missing from around 200. And then we get into portions of books uh, all the way up to within plus or minus 25 years of the original date of composition. 
Now, why do I say all this to you? This might feel like it's just you know, intellectual nonsense or spewing data. Guys, you need to realize that as we look at the, how the Bible or how specifically the New Testament compares to other works that have been handed down from antiquity, you need to realize the New Testament is unmatched in terms of its textual support. We have vastly more manuscripts to compare from. We've got closer dating than any other work from antiquity. And you need to understand that people who raise this objection, when they look at the data, it's an open and shut case. Not in favor of the Bible's corruption, but in favor of the Bible's preservation. Because the Bible in your hand, the Bible in my hand, it's a translation into English from the original Greek. It didn't go from Greek to Syriac, to Coptic, to Latin, to German, to whatever, to whatever, to English. It comes into English from the original Koine Greek, Greek from manuscripts that are extremely close to the original date of composition. This is an open and shut case in favor of the Bible's preservation. Now, one other interesting tidbit, which I thought was almost humorous when I learned about this in seminary. You may not, you may not find this as funny as I did, but it's almost like God built a divine insurance policy on his word. How many of you have ever seen a movie from the Mission Impossible series? Right, when, yeah, is it Ethan Hunt, Tom Cruise character? He always gets his mission, and at the end of the mission, it says, this piece of paper will self-destruct within five seconds or whatever, and it just evaporates. Do you know if that exact same thing happened to the New Testament? And I promise you, when I say the early Roman emperors tried to make that happen to the New Testament, I'll talk more about this next week, but we went through 250 years of extreme persecution where Roman emperors tried to rid the earth of all Christians and their writings. But even if every single copy of the New Testament had been destroyed, as was the intent of the Roman emperors, we could still reconstruct the entire New Testament except for 11 verses. You might say, Mike, how would you do that? We do that through the disciples of the disciples. The early church fathers were prolific in their writing. Uh, Paul, in his writings, he talks about a man named Clement. You've probably heard of Ignatius or Polycarp or Origen or Irenaeus or Tatian, Tertullian, Justin Martyr. These men wrote to each other and other churches prolifically, and they quote the New Testament constantly in their writings. Do you know in the writings of the early church fathers, they call, you can find some of these writings in a book called The Apostolic Fathers, which I really don't like that title. It's kind of a misnomer. We should think of these people as the immediately post-apostolic church fathers, right? But the short form is they're, they're the disciples of the disciples. These guys quoted the New Testament so many times, you will find 36,289 direct quotations from the New Testament in their writings. That's a bunch. And you can literally reassemble the New Testament except for 11 verses directly from these guys' writings. Isn't that wild? Guys, you can be in full confidence that the Bible you have in your hand today is intact. This thing has been preserved. God was faithful to protect his word. It was not handed down by a game like telephone. It's a direct translation, as I said, from the original Greek into English. You might say, well, why does this matter? Why, why, do we, why are we learning about this today, Mike? Guys, it mattered to me because I had a guy who was a good friend who was a lost soul and this was the objection upon which he was hanging his hat. And if I can articulate the reason why that position is unfounded and do so with gentleness and respect, 
I'm in a position to take that objection away from him and present him with some truth, if that's the objection that's preventing him from finding Christ and from trusting Jesus as his savior. Now, you might be saying, okay, Mike, got it. The Bible is intact. It has successfully survived the passage of time. But why does that make it the word of God? After all, don't all religions put forth a holy book of some kind? Don't all religions claim to have some text that was inspired by God? Has God written a book? By the way, worship band, you guys can come out now. We're getting ready to wrap up. If God has written a book, how would we know? What would it look like if God wrote a book? Why do we think the Bible is the word of God and not something else? Well, to get to the answer for that question, has God spoken? You're going to have to come back next week. <laughs> and we'll talk about that then.